It's good to see you, church. Glad you're here today. Uh, We're going to finish the book of Exodus this morning. We have a fair bit of ground to cover. Uh, We won't try to read the majority of the last six chapters of the book, but we will deal with their themes. And I think that by the time we leave this morning, you'll have a pretty handy grasp on not only what's going on at the end of this book, but what it has to do with you. I need to make two quick announcements to you before we jump into the text this morning. The first is that we are one week away from our next covenant member meeting. Uh, I'm sharing this information with you right now because I want it to be really, really, really hard for you to have missed this announcement. That's why we waited till this point of the service to tell you. And so we'll be meeting on the 20th. That's going to happen at the East Campus, 382 Muldoon Road at 1230. Once that service has concluded, there will be child care. There will not be food. The reason there won't be food is because we learned our lesson in December when we tried to feed everybody in the fellowship hall over there, and there's too many of us, and it took an extra hour. So in the interest of getting in, getting the business done, and then letting you go so that you can eat, uh, we will not take the time to feed you there. There will be four things that we'll be voting on in that meeting uh, that I want you to come ready and as prepared as possible to hear about uh, and to make a decision on. The first is a final procedural vote. Uh, This is something that we'll do right at the beginning of the meeting. It's the very last thing we have to do to legally consolidate the two churches into one entity so that we never have to worry about any of that ever coming undone or being questioned ever again. Uh, We will jump into Mike Schmidt's potential appointment, so we'll have a little bit of a bio for you available printed next week in case you haven't had a chance to meet him or Brenda, but this is your warning. You have a week until we're going to make a decision here, and so if you've been meaning to get to know them, to shake their hand, to take him to coffee or take them to dinner, you have five weekdays left to make that happen. Uh, We'll be voting on a revised annual budget. That was passed out last week. We also have copies this morning. So if you haven't grabbed a copy of the proposed budget, remember, we're going to vote on it next week. So if you look at it and it's shocking to you and you disagree, I don't think that will happen. Remember that we haven't made the decision yet, and probably you would be the right person to come and speak up next week so that we can hear from you and hear your perspective. Uh, We have copies of those at the small black tables on either side of the room. You can grab that. Um, And then we will also be making two capital requests. So we've been working with professionals to get quotes on upgrading the kids' classrooms at the East Campus to make sure that they are clean and safe and effective in every way. Uh, We'll have quotes finished by next weekend. We'll be able to put that in your hands. We'll discuss that, explain it to you, what we're asking for. And then we're going to ask for an affirmative vote from the membership on uh, a budgeted amount, so some money. We're going to say, can we spend so many thousands of dollars? Uh, And then if we reach the point where we think we're going to exceed that potentially, we would, of course, come back to you and ask for more before we would, you know, break through that threshold. And then the same thing with sound and lighting at the East Campus. And the reason we're starting with those two sets of improvements is based on the survey results that we got. Those are the two areas that you are the most eager to see uh, potentially tweaked before we move into that building full time. So that is the meeting a week from today. If you have questions about any of those things, uh, you can grab me when the service is over today, another staff member, another elder. Let us know if you have specific questions. You can email us, call us, text us, whatever this week. Uh, but we want you to come ready. And then second, I need to let you know about a change that we've made recently to our relief fund. So if you've been a part of True North since late 2019, early 2020, um, you may remember that when the first round of government stimulus checks was announced, there were some folks within our congregation who were interested in finding a way to get that money into the hands of people who might need it more than they did. So in other words, what I'm saying is some of us were... Uh, the recipients of stimulus money that, frankly, our family wasn't in great need of. Yet we knew there were neighbors in our community, there were people around us who must have a need. And so we wanted to try to find a way to get those finances to people who had real legitimate needs as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. 
Um, for that reason, we were able to put together a team of people. And so I want to show you these names. Um, some of these folks have since moved uh, to another state uh, or have rotated off the team because they just were on it for a long time and needed to do something different. But I'm going to ask if you're in the room today, and I didn't tell you I was going to do this, so if you're embarrassed, I'm really sorry, but we want to say thank you to you. If you're in the room, I'm going to read these names. If you would just stand up, we want to have a chance to, to say thanks to you. Dana Belmore, Rachel Truitt, Tiffany Helkin, Reese Hahnemann, Crystal Leonard, Nick Chaplin, Josh Preston, Lindsey Blom. I think everybody but Lindsey is probably here. Can we clap for these guys? I know. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you can sit down. All right, did you see how none of them wanted you to clap for them because you feel it, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know. You don't seem like you like this. That represents the kind of humility that this team has had from the beginning. Uh, these men and women have been willing to put together uh, rules of engagement is the word that they used, but a set of standards that they were willing to run by our elders to make sure everything was shipshape as far as making sure the right amount of money went to the right people and figuring out what do you do when a person comes back for more and, and trying to, as best we could, disperse all of those funds that you, the members, were willing to give to us so that we could help people, people who we might not know personally but are willing to come forward with a need. And so to that end... Uh, I want to let you know that we had 61 total applications uh, in the run of the, the relief fund's life, and you can probably tell I'm hinting at I'm about to tell you that, that it's closed. I'll tell you why in a second. 61 applications, one covenant member, nine people who regularly attend, 51 people who'd never stepped foot into a True North Life group or attended a Sunday morning service or even really knew any of us all that well. But they found out through word of mouth that there was a church that was willing to help people who were hurting. And so to that end, uh, you have given to the fund, and the fund has now dispersed $29,381.86. Um, and that's a thing that we ought to thank God for, that we had an opportunity to be people who can help others. The reason I'm making this announcement to you today is because the submitted applications for relief funding, the financial amount that those are asking for has now exceeded what remains in the fund. In other words, there are more people asking than we have money to give, and the point from the beginning had been to try to exhaust what you were willing to give and then to reevaluate. This was never a fund that we put together that was supposed to last into perpetuity. We didn't want to just sort of turn it into like a benevolence fund without really talking to you about that. And so the team has stayed, commit, stayed committed to their mission, and they've done well. At this point, because we have now found a home for every dollar and cent that you have given, the fund is officially closed. Uh, we feel that we are approaching the end of what we might consider to be this pandemic in some sense. Uh, some of you may have a different perspective on that than I do. That's okay. Uh, but certainly the severity of the degree to which it's affecting us socially right now is different than it was when things first started. Uh, and many people have found a way to go back to work and have found a way to return to uh, putting food on their table and being able to pay their bills. And so for that reason, if you were to get on to truenorthalaska.com slash giving right now, you would notice that in our giving portal, the relief fund has been removed and it's been replaced with a general benevolence fund. Benevolence is already something that we budget for annually. We don't budget a ton of money. And so what we're going to ask is if you're a person who's been setting aside money to give to the relief fund, or if you are interested in helping people in the community in a more broad range of needs, things like bills and food and medical expenses, things of that nature, you can continue to give. We have a great place for that money to land within the benevolence fund. Um, in the short term, our elders will continue to manage that. We're not going to put together a volunteer team necessarily because we have deacons. And in the long term, we do hope that our deacons will be able to take over the administration of benevolence funds. So that's a lot of uh, information for you. I wanted to make sure you were aware of that. I wanted to catch as many of you as possible and make that explanation very clear. Again, as always, if you have any questions, 
Really happy to answer those. You can send an email, a text, whatever, grab us after church, and we'll be happy to talk you through um, what we've done and why we've done it. So what I would like to do before we hard shift into uh, the end of the book of Exodus is to just say a prayer of thanks to God that he has seen us as worthy of being a part of his mission in a very unique time in human history that we've been able to help our neighbors. And I want to ask God that whatever seed has been planted, to use Jesus' language, might be watered and might receive sunlight and might grow and faith might be born in the life of a person who maybe has never believed the church would do them any good before this. Let's pray. Father, we hope that we've been your hands and feet. I hope, God, that as we've given, we've done so with a glad heart, uh, cheerfully, happy to, to contribute to your work. Um, And I hope, God, that those gifts would be uh, the beginning of something for people, not the end, that it wouldn't just be the last time that they made contact with the church, but it would be the beginning for them of a meaningful relationship with the church. Even if it's not our church, God, if we can do some good uh, to reopen the door in a person's heart, that the church can be a positive presence, that you can be um, the God who you are, compassionate and merciful and kind and willing, God, to bail us out when we have no other options. I thank you for the men and women, many of whom have moved on now, God, because of military assignments or job changes uh, that live other places. It's wonderful to think that as we continue to give this money, that their, their legacy and their contribution has remained a part of what you're doing at this church. I pray, God, that you would bless their lives, that they would be encouraged. And for those of us who remain, that maybe uh, we could learn from this process, that we would be a more giving people. Uh, and that we would give not just to the ministries of the church, but directly to the needs of our neighbors, of our brothers and sisters who live around us. We love you, God, and we trust that you'll continue to do what you want in the lives of the folks with whom we've been able to make contact, and we also believe, God, that you'll bless the lives of those who are willing to serve on this team. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Exodus. We're going to read from chapter 31. Uh, We'll start in verse 1, so I'd love for you to head that direction. You may remember that when we finished Exodus chapter 30, I told you that we would skip into chapter 32. The reason for that is the theming of chapter 31 more closely mirrors chapters 35 through 40 than it does chapter 32. If all of those numbers don't mean anything to you, basically the order of the story is, in chapter 30, God was busy giving Moses the law. 31 is an extension of that law. And then in 32, Moses goes down the mountain, finds the people worshiping the golden calf, Uh, and things get ugly really, really fast. At the point that we pick the narrative back up in 33 and 34, God is willing to restore his people. And then today, what's going to happen is chapters 35 through 40 are going to mirror chapters 25 through 31 almost exactly. All of the things that God told his people to do that we worked our way through several weeks ago, the people will now do. And it's so important to them to clearly communicate and make an uh, impeccable record of their own obedience that the language follows almost verbatim, almost word for word. Exodus 25 will say, you should make the lampstand in this way. And then Exodus 35 will say, and so they made the lampstand in exactly that way. Same thing with the curtains, one for one. Same thing with the altars. Same thing with the wooden poles and the cherubim carved on the ark and the ark itself and the bread on the table. All of those things are done immaculately, perfectly, according to God's plan. The meaning for that, for us, is that God's people were willing to be obedient. This is not something we can assume to be the case. The entire third movement of Exodus is the story of God's people wanting really badly to go back to Egypt and have him leave them alone once and for all. And even after they've arrived in his presence at Mount Sinai, having a spiritual experience unlike anything anybody on the face of the planet has ever had, uh, they're still pretty sure that God's abandoned them, they're not that interested in following him, and they'd rather make their own gods. So the heart change that has to happen from that point to the point where now for five chapters God's people do faithfully exactly what he asked them to do is significant. What we will do today is we will look at two different, what I'm going to call liturgies, two different rules of life 
that God gives to his people, and I'm going to try to help you understand that if these become a part of the way that you live your life, you too will find that your heart will change, just like the Israelites, and that you will do the work of God just as he has commanded that you would. Harder than it sounds. Let's start reading here in verse 1. God is speaking to Moses. Yahweh said to Moses, look, or see, or behold, I have called by name Bezalel, who is the son of Uri, who is the son of Ur, who comes from the tribe of Judah. I guess there were a lot of Bezalels. God had to be specific. He says, I filled him with the spirit of God, my spirit. I filled him with ability. I filled him with intelligence. I've given him knowledge, and I've given him all craftsmanship to do these things. Verse 4, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, to work in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft, everything you can think of, all of the things, Moses, that I've told you you're going to need to be able to do, I have made Bezalel capable. Verse 6, and behold, in addition to him, I have also appointed Aholiab, who is the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men the ability that they have, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So there's sort of a question hanging between Moses and God as God is giving Moses the blueprints. It's honestly a little bit like how I have felt at times evaluating the East Campus, trying to think through what recommendations should the elders make? Do we need to talk to a contractor? Do we need to work with a professional? Can mission teams or volunteers do this work or that work? It can be overwhelming. Certainly there's a vision that I can see that others can see as well of where the building might go so that it could become effective without being you know, overboard, anything like that. I think Moses is having a similar experience. He's heard God describe everything that's supposed to happen, and I think Moses is thinking to himself, I am leading a group of people who pretty much only know how to make bricks out of clay and straw. And I didn't hear God say anything about clay or straw or bricks. I heard God talk about metallurgy and working fine precious metals into thin layers over the outside of pieces of wood that we've never worked with before, that we're supposed to burn incense made up of materials that we can't find. And I think that God now is trying to help Moses see, I'm not just telling you what to do, I'm going to make you able to do it as well. This is a gospel truth for us. The entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when Jesus is teaching, the implication at the beginning of that whole sermon, which walks you through Christian life, is that Jesus will make you able to do these things, or else it's probably not worth your effort. If you try to live a Christian life without Christ, what you've become is religious. You haven't actually become better. You've not engaged with any kind of spiritual life at all. And so God here is meeting a demand that he himself has set. He's providing craftsmen from among God's people to do the work. Now, on a large scale, what we just read tells us that everyone who worked on the tabernacle was made capable beyond their natural ability, that God had something to do with this. Inspiration is the right word for us to use here. Two people stand out from among the crowd, Bezalel and Oholiab, but they're just two members of the fabrication crew. Bezalel is the master craftsman. That's the way we should read what God has instilled in him, in his mind, in his spirit, and his body. Most artists would work with one or maybe two mediums at best, maybe paint, uh, two different kinds of paint, or maybe they would work with pottery, which requires them to do both clay and glaze as sort of an art form. Bezalel can do it all. Any kind of rare metal, all precious stones, all wood, he handles the most intricate parts of the tabernacle personally. And then you have Oholiab, who's not as skilled as Bezalel, but is gifted with administration, with teaching. He can keep all the other crews on track. He manages the work. 
He's able to explain and clarify exactly what Yahweh has in mind as Oholiab oversees the various crews who are weaving curtains or cutting and shaping pieces of wood or the metallurgists who build hundreds of rings and clasps that you need to turn a tent into a building to close up all of the openings between the curtains. Now, for me, when I think of this, an easy way to kind of grab on to what's going on is to consider uh, one of my wife's favorite TV shows, Fixer Upper on HGTV. Anybody? Yes, now you're paying attention. Okay, we're a long way from Waco, Texas, but if I had to cast two people to, pl- to play, Bezalel and Oholiab, I would pick Chip and Joanna Gaines. <laughs> Chip Gaines is Bezalel. He can do it all, right? He shows up on a project. He doesn't do it all, but if there's something that really needs special attention, especially if it's very expensive, the installation of a, a live-edge table or the installation of a new big fireplace or something like that, they bring him in. He oversees the crew. He puts his hands on it. That way, if something goes wrong, he doesn't have to get mad at anybody else, right? He did it himself. And Oholiab is like Joanna. Joanna can see. She's got the vision. She knows where she wants the building to go. She understands exactly what the different teams need to do and the way that the timing needs to work together. And she's checking to make sure the colors are correct and that they match. She's not in there doing all the work herself. Even when it was just her and Chip, that wasn't the way that it was. But she now functions as the overseer. If that can help you kind of grab on to the big task that's put in front of God's people and the way that he has called out these two men to be able to oversee. Exodus chapter 35, if we were to zoom ahead four chapters from where we are here in 31, they make the same exact point about Bezalel and Oholiab. God repeats himself as part of the covenant that he sets up after Moses broke the Ten Commandments and God has to restate the laws. God says, I chose these men and I filled them with my spirit. Theologian Tim Chester says this about the work of the tabernacle. He says, The people who did the work required to fabricate the tabernacle were empowered and equipped through the animating work of the Spirit. And their work was funded by a freed people freely contributing what they could. Now, many of you in the room are makers. I know this because we're connected on some kind of social media or because I've run into your art at a market locally somewhere or you've given me something from time to time. Many of you paint. Some of you sculpt, uh, many of you throw pottery, or you write music, or you may sew, you may work with thread and needle. Many of you bake or cook, some of you work in photography or design, etc. Even people like me, who spend a lot of their week writing and thinking of ways to use words to correctly and clearly communicate broad concepts to people who think differently than us. What we try to do is we try to bring an idea or a feeling, or even a thought, Something unseen and hard to share. We want to bring it out of the mental or spiritual space where it lives in us. And we want to make it real so that someone else can experience it. Art is itself a form of communication. It's me getting a thing that's inside, outside, so that we can all deal with it together. Now imagine if you are a maker of any kind. Imagine if you are a person who would consider yourself an artist, even if other people might have a different opinion of your work. The freedom and the beauty of being able to create something with no strings attached. It's the dream of every artist. Like Tim Chester said, this is a freed people freely contributing. These artists and artisans are able to work without needing to be political to maintain a following. They don't have to comment on the big issues of the day with their art in order for people to consider them to be relevant. They don't have to reflect the values of a movement in their art in order for people to pay attention to them or want to purchase what they have. There's no branding necessary in their work in the temple, excuse me, the tabernacle, and there's no pressure to sell what they are making. 
My wife is an artist, and she has always worked among artists, and I can tell you that there is cognitive dissonance anytime an artist tries to sell their art. They have to, right? They have to find a way to make some money because their spouse is like a significant portion of the budget in our house is going toward clay, and I don't need that much clay. We live in a place where we already have a house. We don't need to build that out of clay. Our children can't eat it. It's not helping us that much, right? But an artist needs to put their hands in it every day if possible. They need the right equipment, the right tools, the right machinery, because inside of them there's a shape of something. And they can see it, they can sense it, they can even feel it. Oftentimes it's very hard for them to qualify and define for the probably more logical and pragmatic person in the relationship. But they need to get that out. There's a sense of being incomplete if they cannot express that thing. And so they end up trying to sell it. They find a way to monetize it because it costs money to get materials and it costs money to have equipment and it costs time and money to be away from the family and things that more pragmatic people might consider to be responsibilities or whatever in order to do the art that your soul craves to do. These artisans are inspired by the spirit and they are totally free to focus heart, mind, soul, body, strength, will, all of it on doing the will of God by expressing what the spirit of God has impressed upon them out into the world in the form of this tabernacle for worship. What if you could have that experience? What if you could make what you love simply because you love the process? And then what if you could give it to God and what if there was always room on his shelf or his refrigerator to hang your art? What if he always enjoyed it? For the artists, those who experience the world by way of their spirit more than body or mind, God's inspiration of the craftsmen of Israel is actually instructive to us. Very easy to miss here. There's a formula in play, and the order in which God explains to Moses what God has put into these artists is a prescription for you and I. If we are people who want to make, if we are people who want to create or produce, we can learn from the way that God has explained his creative process in these creators how we ought to pray and align ourselves with him. So I would argue Exodus 31 verses 1 through 3 is a kind of liturgy for artistry. So if you are a maker, if you are a person who longs to bring things out of theory and into reality in a way that stirs people up and moves them, then I recommend that you pray Exodus 31, 1 through 4. A liturgy is a way to order worship in our lives. It's not a law. It's not a rule. You don't have to do it. No one's going to check in on you. Maybe your spouse will if you're an artist because maybe they want you to pray prayers like this. I don't know, but that's between the two of you. This is not a church-required standard for you to meet. This is an opportunity for you to take your life, which if you're an artist has a tendency to just sort of be everywhere all the time, and put it in bounds a little bit. Set it on a set of rails that come out of God's word. A liturgy like this would involve praying that God's spirit would fill you because he is the source of all real inspiration. God is not boring, He doesn't live in a 1920s movie in grayscale. His life is full of color. He made many things that we are just now discovering several thousand years into the history of this planet. Essentially, all the time we act like we're finding things God has known about for a very long time. Colors, animals, shapes, heights, depths, the way that nature functions and flows. God has created the most vibrant living thing in the world. This spaceship that we call planet Earth is his, his idea. So it ought not go counter to our understanding of what he cares about and who he is to imagine that he would inspire us to be artistic. He is. He's creative, deeply creative. We should pray that we would be made able. You see that in the way that God describes what he's done. He's made these men capable. Their bodies work the right way. If you are a person who is already able, many of us are. Many of us are on the younger end of the age spectrum. We ought to pray that God would protect our bodies and our minds. 
The great tragedy of many secular artists is in the pursuit of what their spirit longs for, they destroy their body and minds. How many artists can you think of who died tragically at a young age because they could not harness the great weight that they carried in their own soul, and so they ran to physical or mental things that brought them away from that stress, and they lost their ability to make anymore. To sort of bottle that creative lightning is a challenging thing. It is a painful process. It is not as easy as simply painting a nice picture every day. There is emotion and angst and a sense of spirit involved in producing something meaningful on the artistic spectrum. So we ought to ask God to make us capable to harness those things. We ought to pray for intelligence, that we would understand whatever medium it is that we work with. God, teach me to understand the way that light plays off of leaves. God, instruct my heart and my mind to understand the molecular structure of clay, how much water to add, how long it will take to dry. What does the consistency need to be if I'm going to build something that's going to hang out in space without breaking under its own weight? Teach me, God, about wood or thread, about metal or sound or paper, words and ideas and emotions. God is the master of all those things. The greatest artistic mind in existence, and he can give to you what he has. And then pray for knowledge, that you might see and understand many things, and that your experience of God's creation would always be expanding, because that's a great part of where your inspiration will come from. It will be your palette, if you will, so that you can find and incorporate more and more of his work into your work, and that you may speak to people in a way that communicates something of value into their human experience. And then last, and I think it's significant that this is last on the list, you should pray for craftsmanship. If you are a maker, you ought to ask God to make you into the kind of person who can handle that inspiration responsibly. The character to bring what is inside of you out to the rest of us, the follow-through to finish what you start, the strength of will to muscle through all the projects that no one will ever see, and the healthy boundaries that keep your artistry rewarding and responsible. The openness to follow God into new arenas of creativity and expression. This is what it means to be a craftsman. You should pray this way if you are a maker. You should not consider your artistic expression or the things you make with your hand to just be a hobby. I don't think there's any such thing as just a hobby. I think that God has inspired and built and created some of us to be people who can express something out into the world that others of us would never dream of but we desperately need. And churches, historically, that tend to value God's word and tend to be very dogmatic in the sense that they are biblical often look down upon art. And I think it's a mistake. I think it's a failure to, to delegate or to hand off the realm of art to the secular world. Why should all art or the majority of art be sensual in nature? Why should it be about the glorification of the human experience or about the self-destruction that sin draws us into? I think that art is an untapped arena and that's all that I'll say. So we've excuse me, seen from Yahweh how he inspires, what he can do for us in art and culture. Now he will give us a liturgy of work and rest. This will be Exodus 34, verse 21. God said, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In both plowing time and in harvest time, you shall rest. This is a reiteration of one of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, when God first gives the ten sacred words, the foundational laws to the rest of the law, he explains a Sabbath. The reason I read this version to you is I think it's the most concise of the five places that Sabbath shows up in Exodus. It appears again in Exodus 31. You heard Steve read that earlier this morning. It appears in Exodus 34, where I just read it to you, and then one more time in Exodus chapter 35. And each time that God commands the Sabbath, he shares a little bit more insight into what he is getting at by instructing his people to take a day off. 
In Exodus 20, the command for Sabbath comes at a really key time in the life of Israel. So if you can, try to grab onto the timeline again in your head. Uh, We've worked our way through Exodus in the way that we have to try to help you understand the order of events, and I hope that will benefit you now. This command to rest, this command to stop, to have Sabbath, lies between two critical moments in the life of Israel. Behind them on the timeline in the past, they've just left Egypt. Egypt is a place of unlimited production and consumption. It's always better, morally better, in the eyes of the Egyptians to create more and to create more and to create more. It's also always morally better to consume more and consume more and consume more. The patterns of worship that we looked at, each of the 10 plague weeks that we worked through the plagues, when we saw the idols themselves, each of those idols is designed to get you to do something or fear something or make something or give something. They're meaningless if they don't draw a reaction out of you and the cycles of those reactions become endless. It becomes a kind of lifestyle of anxiety that you're always having to lay another thing at the feet of another altar or else something will happen to you. Does that sound like the way many of us participate in our careers to you at all? I gotta keep going, man. I can't let that other, if I, if I, if I don't answer these emails, I could get in a lot of trouble. My bonus is on the line. If I want that promotion, I gotta show those guys I'm serious about it. I gotta grow new leaders. I gotta bring new plans to the table. And yet the story that I hear over and over and over again is those of us who are followers of Jesus often end up throwing ourselves against walls in our secular workplaces. We live with this perpetual anxiety that we're never doing enough, and yet nobody really seems to appreciate what it is that we're doing. We are living the experience of a cog in a machine, constantly worn down but never stopping moving. So for Israel, a temptation for them would be to just embody what they know, to become a people defined by overboard production, and then as a result, overboard consumption. And as supply and demand are reaching ever higher and higher and higher, constantly trying to exceed each other, God's people would ultimately be the casualty. They themselves would be the collateral damage, so God says, you got to stop. But then out in front of them is another temptation. Right after God gives this command to take a Sabbath seriously, he hands them arguably the most important work any group of people have ever done in God's name, to build him a house on earth. Do you think there was an easier or more justifiable line of work to argue that you ought not take a day off than to feel that you are under God's um, lens, that he's looking at you, that he's over your shoulder waiting for you to finish his own home? Right? I mean, how am I supposed to take a day off when I'm like, every day that I take a day off is another day that God's not dwelling among his people. No big deal, right? Everybody else in camp is like, you really ought to be out there hanging those tents. We'd love for God to move back into the neighborhood again. And yet God says, you got to rest. The work that he's talking about when he says work six days and take the seventh day off, a day of solemn rest as holy unto the Lord, in the short term, that work is building the tabernacle. That's what God is describing. Now, you and I can connect with these concepts and hopefully understand the reason, the need that we have for rest as well, because our American values are very similar to the experience that the Egyptians had. I said to you earlier that many of us have experienced this sort of incessant need to always be working and to never be able to unplug. This is a result of many things, one of which is modern advertising. The advent of advertising was to try to help you find a thing that you needed. I think that was really the point at the beginning. Modern advertising is now about convincing you that you need something that you weren't even asking for, something that you probably didn't even know existed before you saw whatever form of advertisement you were exposed to. Totally different. You have become a commodity. Do you know that? 
You have now become bought and sold. We're probably all familiar with the way that our data is mined online, but more than that, your loyalty to a brand, a color, a name, a smell is worth billions of dollars to the right people. So it's not as simple as it used to be. It's a little more challenging, and I believe that capitalism in the West has now outgrown its fundamental principles. Free market exchange and competitive industry are not wrong things, but now our opinions have been commoditized. Our sexuality has been commoditized. Our race, even our faith, has been commoditized. The Frankenstein's monster that we call the economy feeds off of our constant production and consumption without limits. And in order to meet the demands of our careers in a world like this, we cannibalize ourselves. Even pastors. Maybe you would imagine this is true for me, maybe you wouldn't, I don't know, but I live every day with a shadow of insufficiency hanging nine or ten steps behind me. Not right over the top of my head, but it's close. It's just a few dumb decisions away from swooping in and blocking out the sun and inspiring me to believe all kinds of awful things about myself and the church, et cetera, et cetera, my family, my wife. I am tempted. I am tempted like you are tempted to stay up late answering emails. I am tempted to answer ministry phone calls in the car when I'm with my family. I am tempted to find ways to brand the church or my preaching so that I will attract more people. And the endless cycle of doing, the 24-hour workday, the relentless idea that more is always better draws me just like it draws you. I'm not immune from that because I spend a little more time studying the Bible than you do every week. But what keeps that shadow of insufficiency behind me instead of above me is discipline. I must work against my do-it-all and never-stop tendencies by forming habits that form me. And that's what Sabbath is. It's a habit. It's rhythmic. Yahweh doesn't build Sabbath in as an emergency break. Something to pull when we feel like we can't go on or we find ourselves living without Jesus when we're on the clock. But that's how we use it, right? I mean, frankly, most of the times I've heard Sabbath come up in conversation lately is with people who've already hit rock bottom and are desperate to find a solution. But their intention is not to build a healthy rhythm into their life. Their intention is to find the medicine that will heal the wound so they can go right back to binging work. We binge rest and then we binge work and then we binge rest and then we binge work. And we're totally out of balance. We've lost the principle. We've lost the concept. We think we know best. It's worth pushing ourselves too hard, too fast, for too long to get something meaningful done. And yet, how many times when you cross the finish line with that big project or that task that you've been slaving away at, how many times is there kind of an empty round of applause and then everybody moves on? And yet, we think that this time it'll really matter. If I were to stop this time, everything would fall apart. I can't afford to believe that God is right. I have to try to do it my own way. Now, I don't know if you actually follow a rhythmic Sabbath. Maybe some of you do, but it's something that I started in 2020. You may recall, I've spoken about this before, that I kind of hit rock bottom in my own life. Uh, The summer of 2020, I was spending a lot of time in my bathrobe. Uh, I was crying randomly at different things and just doing some soul searching and I kind of took an emergency week off of work. I got to late on a Saturday night and I could feel that something was wrong and so I got through the next morning, uh, Sunday morning, and then I was like, I'm out. I'm disconnected. I'm unplugging. I've got to figure out what's going on because I can't do this forever and ever and ever. This cannot be an every two-year cycle in my life. And one of my takeaways was I had no sense of rest. I had no rhythm at all. I wasn't fighting and working toward not working, if that makes sense. I was just sort of letting it come when it did, and I was leaning really, really heavy on vacations to try to heal my soul. Not a good plan. If that's your plan, today would be a great day to reevaluate. If you're just thinking that that week in Hawaii is all your body and mind and spirit need, no, no. That is not one-seventh of your schedule. Now, if you're going to Hawaii for like nine weeks every year, 
that sounds good, okay, maybe you can pull that off. But God's plan for your life, his rhythm for you is once a week, once a week, every seven days. I don't think it has to be Sunday. Remember, we are new covenant people. We're not bound to the letter of the law, but the principle remains. We're not a different kind of human being than lived in Exodus. We're the same biology. We're the same programming. We're the same tools and mechanisms, and we need maintenance. We need rest. To stop, to rest, to not work or to not fix everything or to not jump back in is challenging. To choose instead to read and think and drink water and try to keep your heart rate down and practice patience and give your full attention to your family. To pray as often as things come to mind and when you feel tempted back into the raging river of things that need your attention, you give them to God. That's why it's a day of solemn rest as unto the Lord. It's not just a 24-hour yoga session here, okay? This is you focusing on God and letting God be God and you are not. A favorite quote of mine from Victor Hugo that I often think of as I'm falling asleep with my own heart racing to the anxiety of all the things I have to get done the next day is you can sleep because God is awake. This is the principle of Sabbath. God doesn't stop. You need to. God doesn't drop the ball. You need to disengage. God doesn't fail to see things through to their finish, you need to take a pause so that you can see things through to the finish. Sabbath works in our favor against the light speed consumerism that we have to navigate outside the church, but it also helps us resist the second temptation that Israel faced when God first explained the Sabbath, the urge to sacrifice everything in the name of doing the Lord's work. We feel that magnetism too, don't we? That awful draw that if we aren't everywhere all the time in Jesus' name, then something terrible might happen. A day of rest from work might sound easy to you, even if it doesn't fit in your schedule, but we have to remember the context of the conversation that God is having with his people in Exodus 31. The work that they're being commanded to rest from is the work of building his house, his tabernacle. Yes, some of them are farming. Yes, some of them are cooking. Certainly some of them are cleaning, but the temptation would be for God's people to work seven days a week in the name of doing his will, to ignore one law in pursuit of another. If that's not Christianity today, I don't know what is, man, of us ignoring half the thing to try to be awesome at the other half. But we have to take it together. This is a law given in totality. God says they must rest. What happens if they won't? Steve read it. Did you catch it earlier? God says if they don't rest on the Sabbath, they'll be executed. So how's that for perspective? (laughs) Not trying to say to you, that's my plan for your life, okay? Here's the principle. Here's the principle. What God is communicating is, If you think you're so important, I'll remove you. You think you need to work 24-7? Great, it's done, it's over. I don't need you that bad. I don't want your fanaticism. I don't want your workaholicism. I don't want them. I want you to follow me, and I will give you a work to do, and it will be meaningful. But it cannot become your God, because if it does, now we're in competition, and you know who wins that fight. Remember Egypt? I don't lose to other gods. So... If you think you're so important to God's work that you never rest, he says he'll have these people killed at least. I wouldn't say that extends into your life as a new covenant believer, but ask yourself, if it's that important to God that I rest, how much work am I going to get done when I'm dead? None. And the spiritual principle extends into your life. If you don't take a day off, you will die spiritually. You'll shrivel up. Your mind will change. Physically, biologically, you will die much sooner and much earlier than you expect to. It will eat you alive to not pace yourself. Failure to learn the principle of rhythmic rest from Yahweh is, in my opinion, one of the most significant sources of the rampant pride and self-exaltation that we see in many Western churches. 
the pastor-centric, heavily produced, emotional circus acts that we sometimes call churches could not exist in a world where everyone on that church staff truly disengaged with their career for 24 hours a week. It's impossible to do. You can't pull it off. It can't be the greatest show on earth if everybody's taking a break because it's going to hurt your communication. It will. You're going to drop the ball on some things. Things are not going to be as professional and as smooth and as flawless and perfect as oftentimes we expect when we show up for a service. The only way a show like that goes on is if people are willing to take all the risk, all the chance, and all the faith out of Jesus gathering by planning and planning and planning. Planning for every possibility, hiring the most consummate professionals, and spending money like they're producing a Disney movie. So why Sabbath? Because if you don't, you'll eat yourself alive. You'll either eat yourself alive outside the church in the name of more and better, or you'll eat yourself alive inside the church in the name of more and better. The threat's the same. Your God says, take a break, step back, breathe, focus on me. So I would argue Exodus 34, 21 is the liturgy of work and rest. We've seen a liturgy for artistry. Now here is a liturgy for those who maybe feel like they're in the more pragmatic column today. They find that their mind and their body are laser-focused. They have a plan. They think about following a schedule, maybe, even if they're not uh, willing to follow through on the rest part of it. At least they plan their days. This is the way that we ought to pray. Pray first that there would always be work to be done. God says, six days you will work. Work is not the problem. You are the problem. Work is good. How you work is wrong. Do you understand the difference there? God is trying to change you. When a person has no work to do, they shrivel. Literally, the same problem as overworking happens to people when they have no purpose. They die when they become idle, according to a study of Shell Oil employees from just last September. This was reported by the Philadelphia Tribune. People who retire at age 55 are 89% more likely to die within the next 10 years than those who wait to retire until they are 65. That is almost double the rate of early death, and I've seen it. I lived in central Kentucky for three years, and when men quit working in their wood shops and quit repairing cars and quit coming up to the church to piddle around in the machinery closet and try to fix things that weren't broken, their spirit was gone. It departed from them. They needed something to do. I think oftentimes women outlive men because the work of the woman in that stage of her life is to care for her family, and her family is there, and they need her desperately. But the man can disengage from the work of his hands and his body, and his spirit will begin to fade. And before you know it, he'll be gone. He'll step into eternity because there's nothing keeping him here anymore. Now, you could argue that that's good, but I don't think any of us are trying to go to heaven in our late 50s, right? We have a life to live. We want to do the Lord's work. So we ought to pray that there would be good work to do, and then we ought to pray that that work would be meaningful. Tied directly to unlimited production and consumption is the rise in minimum wage jobs in the West. Fast food, call centers, overnight checkout clerks, all kinds of blue-collar jobs can be dead-end and meaningless. People who work without purpose have the experience of being expendable. Think of the slaves in Egypt. They did some of the hardest and best work ever. You can still go to Pi Ramses and see archways that they built thousands of years ago. Nothing has lasted like that. And yet their experience in the midst of that work was that they were meaningless and less than human. It is very possible to make something nice and not be a person who's experiencing life. Pray that you would have the discipline to plan your rest. This is where things start to get a little painful. The first two are easy to pray, right? But if God gives you meaningful work, it's going to bring with it an almost daily temptation to wait for rest until you feel like you need it. But it's not up to you. This is not a lesson that you have to learn the hard way. You can, but you can also ask God to help you plan your rest, and he will. You can carve out 24 hours. You can. If you think you can't, that is a red flag that you desperately need to. Fourth, 
These last two are a little bit harder. Pray that you would rest when there is too much work to be done. This is what God means when he says you will take the seventh day off even in the season of plowing. In plowing season, you're racing the clock. You're racing the coming rains. You can't plow too early or the dirt will all get packed back in and it's not any good. But if you plow too late, you're plowing mud and you can't plant in mud. So often when we feel like we can't afford to rest or else everything will fall apart, that's a sign that we're already way out of balance. Well-rested people can leave work at the office and they rarely find themselves in positions where they feel like they need to sacrifice their rest in order to get more done. And then finally, in your liturgy of work and rest, pray that you would rest even when there is money to be made or opportunity to be taken. And this is harvest season. Same thing, you're racing the clock in harvest season. If you can bring in the best crop, you can make the most money. Your, your family can finally invest in that nice stone well instead of the wood well that you have in ancient Egypt. You can go for the things that feel like you deserve them to you. And yet, God says, even in that season, you give me that seventh day. So how's that for a gut check? A real practical way to add this to your prayer life, if you're not going to plan to pray through this whole liturgy, I think you probably should, but if you won't, at least pray to God that he would protect your heart from money. Have you ever prayed that prayer before? Has anybody ever taught you the biblical principle that money is just as much a threat as it is an opportunity and it ought to be handled very carefully in the same way that you would handle a power tool? Add that prayer to your list this week and see if your perspective doesn't change. So a liturgy for artistry, a liturgy for work and rest. The majority of chapters 35 through 40 are a word-for-word carbon copy of chapters 25 through 31. And the only application that I have for you from the remainder of these chapters is that the rules for life that God gave to his people These two liturgies of how to do work well and how to rest well and what it means to be inspired and to be producing art and culture in Jesus' name, these things worked because God's people finished the job. They got to the finish line. They did not cannibalize themselves. They did not self-destruct. They did not again erect an idol to worship and reject God. They followed his rhythm. They found a meaningful work. They learned to express themselves and they submitted themselves to God. They brought their own dominion under God's domain by submitting it to him. That's our call as grown-ups, as adults, to find an area of this earth to reach the people who are within arm's length of us and then to bring them under God's rule and reign by the way that we take care of them. We add our little domain to his big kingdom. These rules of life were incredibly effective in the lives of the Israelites, And if you'll pray this way, these liturgies will be life-changing for you. You can change the words, okay? I just made these up this week. This is up to you how you want to handle this. But the principles are there. See God's law as instructive and helpful, as prescriptive, as medicative to the things that bother your soul. You have modern problems. These prayers will help. Where we'll finish today is with the closing of the book of Exodus. Listen to what God's people were able to do under the influence of God's rule of life, his liturgies at work in their hearts, minds, and bodies. This is Exodus 40, 17, and then 33 through 38. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of that month, the tabernacle was erected. They, they raised the great tent in the desert, six months after God gave them the instructions. And Moses erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar. He set up the screen of the gate at the court, And so Moses finished the work. When the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled it. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would leave. They would follow the cloud. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was. They stayed. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. 
40 plus years that we're talking about here. God's people don't know it yet, but they're about to wander and wander and wander, and God will dwell in their midst the entire time. He will take them into the promised land. It will be 100 years plus until a temple shows up, closer to 300 years. This will be the way that they know God's will. And yet, every Sabbath, you can guarantee that that cloud didn't move. And every time a clasp or a pen or a curtain tore or broke or was lost in transition, you can believe that the Spirit inspired someone to be capable to replace it because the work mattered to God. So the practical application for you and I is that God doesn't just live in this room a couple of hours a week. God is a God who is deeply invested in our culture, in our society, in your work, in your home life, in your rhythms, in your Google calendar. God is present. He wants to be. He desires to be. He will make your life better. He will enrich you. These people crafted beautiful works of art like none of them had ever seen, covered in imagery of the Garden of Eden and of eternity. As they weaved and forged, as they sanded and shaped, they stopped every six days to be still and to remember who Yahweh is. They sacrificed, they worshiped, they moved slowly, they moved carefully, and they valued God, and they valued his word. And as a result, God was near to them and they were near to God. That's the point. That's the thing that can make whatever you do with your life the most meaningful. Yahweh, who was rich in mercy and slow to anger, dwelt among his people again, just as he did in Eden, just as he did on Sinai, and as he would again in the temple in Jerusalem, when he lived among humanity through Jesus, as he's present now in Christians by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, his church. He dwells among us. My prayer is that the way you have sensed and experienced God in Exodus would be imprinted on you. That the themes and the concepts of this book, God's great desire to be with his people, his extreme mercy to make that happen, and then the rule of life that he gives, not to be an overlord, but to invite us into a lifestyle that we would never attain on our own. May that grow our faith. May you have even more reasons to love God with all of your being today than you did a year ago, and may you remember that the whole Bible is the story of the coming of Jesus who restores everything that we've lost. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time in this great book, this gospel of the Old Testament. As we've seen your people trapped, captured by their enemies, um, having adopted and taken on the lifestyle of their own slave masters, God, deeply entrenched in sinful patterns and selfishness and fear and doubt. We've seen people use power for their own advantage. We've seen men and women rebel against you in spite of your graciousness, God. We've seen even leaders of your body doubt you and come to you throwing their hands in the air and saying, where do we go from here? What are we supposed to do? So I pray, God, that you would remind us as we sit with the weight of this great story that these are not just stories. This is truth. It happened. It's history. And it's our history as people of faith that we can look back at these things and bank on your character having never changed and you remaining the same. God, I pray that you would grow our faith. I pray that you would draw us near to you and that you would give us an openness to prioritize living life your way. We love you, God. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.